Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. The Learning Scientist Podcast is funded by the Wellcome Trust. Welcome to episode one of the Learning Scientist Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jana Weinstein, a professor at UMass Lowell. And I'm Dr. Megan Samaraki, a professor at Rhode Island College. Some of you may have known me as Dr. Megan Smith, but just a few days ago I got married, and so now I'm Megan Samaraki. And we're both cognitive psychologists who apply our science to education. We actually started the Learning Scientist Project about a year and a half ago, but we've been interested in education for a long time. You can make some guesses about where I'm from, but I'll tell you. I was born in Russia, and I grew up there a little bit until I was about seven or eight. And then my family moved to England, which is what you should be hearing, because that's the accent that I'm supposed to have. That's the accent that I had for most of my life. But then I also spent a little bit of time in France. And then finally, I moved to America nine years ago, first to St. Louis, Missouri, which is where I actually met Megan. And then for the past five years, I've been living in Boston. But this is just to say that most of my education was actually in the UK. And then I've been living and working in the US most recently. And I have been in the States my entire life. I've visited elsewhere, but I've only ever lived here. Though I've beat-bopped around the United States a fair amount. I grew up north of Chicago, and then I went to Purdue University in Indiana, which is in the Midwest, for my undergraduate education. I went to Washington University in St. Louis for my master's. I was a master's student while Yana was a postdoc there, and and that's when we met. So she was higher up on the food chain than I was at the time. And then I went back to Purdue University to finish my PhD. I then went to a tiny little town in central eastern Utah and took a year-long position there at Utah State University Eastern. I was in Price, Utah. It's a little town that has about 10,000 people in it, and the county is about 20,000, surrounded by canyons. And I, I lived there for a little bit, and then I moved to Providence, Rhode Island, and now I work at Rhode Island College. So yeah, approximately eight years ago, Megan and I met, but we were just you know, lab buddies. We didn't really do any projects together. We attended lab meetings together, occasional social hours, but that was about the extent of our relationship. But a year and a half ago, we kind of rediscovered each other through Twitter (laughs) in a very, very random way. So one night I was just scrolling around on Twitter, which I didn't really use to communicate with anyone. I just was reading news stories and some of the stories I was reading were all about how people were going out there and doing great things for education and I thought hey why am I not doing this I was supposedly doing research applying cognitive psychology to education but my research wasn't really getting out there and reaching the people that I cared about like teachers and students so I decided I would take things into my own hands and look for those students right there on Twitter and try to help them out So what I did was I started searching phrases like how to study or test tomorrow. And I was quite surprised to find that approximately once every minute, a forlorn student who doesn't know how to study is tweeting out into the abyss asking for help. And so I decided, hey, I'll just help them out. I'll uh, tweet a little bit of uh, advice to them. You know, it's only 140 characters. There's only so much I can say. But I can tell them things like, hey... You know, instead of staring at your book, maybe put the book away and try to remember everything you know from memory. Most of the students obviously completely ignored me. Some said, get off my timeline. But occasionally some of them responded. And this is where Megan comes in. 
Yeah, so I was actually creating a Twitter assignment for my students in cognitive psychology. And the assignment was basically for the students to take what they were learning in the classroom and apply it to their real lives and tweet about the cognitive psychology principles they were learning just to a general audience. And the assignment ended up actually being a disaster and I don't use that assignment anymore. But while I was on Twitter preparing the assignment and getting my Twitter profile ready to help the students, I noticed Yana tweeting and we hadn't seen each other in a very long time. But I, I messaged her and said, hey, what are you doing? And she told me what she was doing. And I said, well, that sounds like fun. I'll join in. And so it's late at night, at least late for me. I'm a morning person. and so Probably I'm, 9 p.m. Yeah, 9 p.m. I'm laying in bed ready to go to sleep. And I've got my phone and I'm, I'm tweeting, um, tweeting to these students about effective learning strategies. And so after about one night of doing that, Megan woke up in the morning and she said, look, we can't keep doing this from our own accounts. You know, I have a class that I'm running from that account. We need to do this from a different account. And that's how our first or our Twitter account was born. And it was called Ace That Test. We came up with Ace That Test just because we were tweeting at students, helping them to study and learn their information for their tests. And that's where that name came from. We didn't really... We didn't think long and hard about the name. We just sort of picked it on the fly. We didn't, and it has caused us some problems. Uh, people ask us whether we might be a test prep company or might be selling something. So we explicitly stated in our Twitter profile that we are not selling anything, and we're just here to help students study better and learn more. No sales pitch, just science. That's right. So after a couple weeks of this, um, using that Ace That Test Twitter account, we realized, sure, we're, we're tweeting important information and people were really starting to pay attention to us. We got a fair number of followers, a few hundred in the first couple weeks. But we were trying to figure out what this now project would even be and what we were going to do as we continued to move through the spring semester. And my, uh, my fiance, Sam Samaraki, who's a strategic communication expert, said, well, really, you need more than Twitter. You can't just tweet because the tweets, while they are technically there forever, it's very difficult to search for old ones. It's difficult to follow Twitter conversations. In fact, I still find it difficult to follow Twitter conversations, and we've been using Twitter extensively for a year and a half. I find it easy. So, <laughs> Yana does the Twitter. So um, Sam suggested that we create a blog and house the blog on a website. And that's how our website was created. It's www.learningscientists.org. So we started this website, but at the time that we started it, we didn't really have a big long-term plan for it. We just thought, hey, this is a place that we'll use to communicate the science of learning. And so the first blog post that we wrote, it was kind of naive, and the name of it was something like Communication Breakdown Between Science and Practice in Education. And we, we thought we were being so original and so exciting. We thought that certainly all we need to do is just tell teachers about the science and then everyone is just going to say, oh, wow, no one's ever told us that before. We should, we should really pay attention to these things. And of course, it's not the case that teachers never heard about this before. It's that people in the research community and teachers don't really communicate well with one another. There's not a common language, and there's a lot of discussion about how we can talk to people as opposed to talking with people. It's an issue of trust, I think. And so a lot of the responses that we got to our blog post was, hey, you think you know what you're doing, but have you ever even been in a K-12 through classroom? And actually, Megan has. 
Yeah, so it's it's a little bit unique. Most researchers haven't been um, in a classroom, at least not a classroom under under the university level. I did spend a couple of years in classrooms K through 12, year one um, through A levels in the UK. Um, I was a substitute teacher when I was in Indiana. In the state of Indiana, you're allowed to substitute teach as soon as you finished half of your bachelor's degree. And so I, as a someone who's really interested in education, and I was majoring in psychology, but it was a child development and family studies minor, I really wanted to get experience with children in an education. And so I signed up to be a substitute teacher. Of course, there were background checks and things like that. Um, but I, I passed all of those things. And so I became a sub. And I would sometimes sub for kindergarten sometimes um, the younger younger grades all the way up through high school. I even did some remedial subbing for a while and at one school was with a, a number of children who had been, I guess, sort of banned from the main building and were in this sort of external building because of behavioral issues all the way up through, you know, the honors students and the children of professors near the university. I really had a pretty wide range. So there's a stereotype that cognitive psychologists haven't been in the classroom. And there's also a stereotype that the research that we do is confined to the lab. And what I mean is that the research that we do is thought of as very, very simplified and controlled and nothing to do with the real classroom. And the thing is, there is some truth to this because that's kind of how we start out. When we have an idea, a theory, what we do typically is we test it out in the lab. Now, it's not a lab like rats are running around necessarily, but it's a lab with respect to it's just a room with a computer and the participants come in. They're probably either getting paid or credit to participate. So they're not there for any real type of learning experience. And we give them things to study that probably they would never be studying in their real life education. Hopefully not. My guess is that none of the teachers are teaching their students a series of nonsense syllables. Exactly. So things like that that are very, very simple and as a result are very easy for us to control so that we can figure out exactly what's going on in terms of the different strategies that are more or less effective. But the thing is, that's not where we stop. Maybe that's where some very basic cognitive psychologists stop. But we apply cognitive psychology to education. And what that means is that we then go beyond that level. And the next one is what I like to call the applied lab level which is that we take materials now that are much more realistic. In fact, we might take a textbook that students would actually study and then turn that into experimental materials so that the participants who come in actually study something that they would study in real life. It's just that we're still able to control how long they study it for, in what way, when they come back to take a test, et cetera, et cetera. And we try to control whether or not they're on their cell phones, but of course, to some extent, we can only go so far. Right. So we're not yet simulating a real classroom environment, but we are with respect to the types of materials. So we're using much more complex materials. And what we hope to see here is that the strategies that we found to be effective in the basic lab level, again, work in this applied lab level. And if they don't, we can always go back and see what happened and maybe even go back to the basic level and do some more tweaking. And the beauty of this particular um, system is that we can figure out what is causing learning to occur. So by controlling all of these different aspects of the environment, yes, we are making it 
different from a classroom environment, but we're able then to look and see which aspect of the strategy is actually producing learning so that later on when we are trying to apply it in the classroom, which Yana will talk about in a second, we're able to say this is the piece that's causing learning, these other pieces are in the periphery. So cause is very important. Yeah, so once we've figured out something that works and we know why it works and how it relates to what we already know about memory and about attention, that's when we go into the classroom. And we wait this long because it costs money and more importantly time, teacher time and student time, for us to go in and do this research in the classroom. So we really don't want to be coming up with you know, random innovative strategies and testing them out in the classroom. Instead, we want to do lots and lots of well-controlled research in the lab. And then once we have something we're pretty confident in, then take it out to the classroom, where there are so many contextual factors that we can't necessarily control. And a lot of these studies are things that we'll be talking about throughout this podcast. We're hoping to publish episodes that discuss the research more broadly, and then also some bite-sized research episodes where we talk about specific research in maybe five to 10 minutes. Yeah, so what we've been doing so far over the past year and a half is that we have a blog that we update very frequently. We have this three times a week schedule that we almost never deviate from. And what we post on that blog are um, resources that we can talk about a little bit in future episodes. And there are also different articles about the science of learning and how they apply to the classroom. We also sometimes have teachers come and write articles about how they're applying some of the research to their classrooms. So we find that really, really interesting because it helps us understand how teachers are using the research and what kinds of research we can do to improve the usefulness. We have been focusing on six strategies in particular. And the reason we picked the six strategies we did is because over the last century, cognitive psychologists have been doing a lot of work on learning strategies and teaching strategies. And somewhat recently, a group of cognitive psychologists went back through the literature and tried to identify the strategies that have the most evidence supporting their effectiveness. And what fell out of this report is six key strategies that seem to have a lot of evidence. And the six strategies are concrete examples, which is using specific examples to understand abstract ideas, elaboration, explaining and describing ideas with many details, retrieval practice, which is practice bringing information to mind, spacing, spacing out your studying over time, interleaving, switching between ideas while you're studying or jumbling the ideas up, and dual coding, combining words and visuals. Now, that's a lot of information, and of course, we're not expecting you to remember that right now. What we'll be doing over the next few episodes is going into more detail about what these strategies are and how they apply to the classroom. We've actually been going around and talking to quite a few teachers and also students about these strategies. For example, we spent a few weeks or even just, what, 10 days in England just about a month ago. It was a really amazing whirlwind trip. It was Megan's first time in England. And uh, as a uh, surprise for that, I made her drive us all around. (laughs) On the left side of the road and everything. We survived, and and more importantly, so did um, everyone in England. (laughs) Well, Megan did a great job driving. And what we got to do was talk to lots and lots of teachers and students at different schools. And what was really nice was, in particular, we had one group of students aged 
all the way from nine to 18. And we were talking to them about how they study. And at first we just kind of asked them to tell us how they studied. And then we mapped on some of the, what they were already doing to these effective strategies. And so that's how jumbling it up came up because there's the strategy interleaving, which is switching between ideas while you study. But a, I think a 12 year old <laughs> came up with his own term for it, which is jumble it up. And we really, really like that. We actually wrote a blog post about it recently. Yes. So now he's a co-author on our blog. So this is all to say that we've spent a lot of time thinking about these six strategies, and we've spent uh, our careers reading about these strategies and doing research on these strategies. And so what we hope to do in this podcast is present some of this information and hopefully produce more opportunities to communicate with teachers. So definitely leave comments on our blog, leave comments on our podcast, or connect with us on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, we'd really love to hear from you. You know, some of you may have already been reading our blog. You might have some advanced questions. For others, this might be the first time you've ever heard of us. Either way, take a look at the website. There's an FAQ page, Frequently Asked Questions. So if you have a question, it might already be answered on that page. And there's also a form on there where you can um, enter your own questions if you have follow-up questions as well. So check out the links in the show notes. See you next time. The Learning Scientist Podcast is funded by The Wellcome Trust.